you know, we can have a, a good almost roundtable discussion as we get kicked off here. Um, these are the themes of the discussion. These are your your panelists. I just want to make sure that Nargis is on. Um, I know a few other people are still coming in. Um, we have Ilya from Monaco, Vlad from Columbus, Tom from Tom Jump from Boston, Simon Vine from Connecticut, Simon Hopkins from Singapore, Sean Lawless from New Jersey, Sam. I don't know where you're, I think you're in the city. Um, Richard Singer, Kyle Hong, um, Eddie from Bridgehampton, Eric from Dallas, um, Eric Anderson from London, Andrew Randack from Brooklyn, Christopher Wood from Upper West Side, Joe Haverty in Utah, Joe Zara up in West, up to state New York, uh, and then we have Turner in, in New York, Rye, and, uh, I think, that's it. Five one five six one. I don't. Who's five six one? Hi, it's Howard Cooper. Oh, hi, Howard. Welcome from from Palm Beach. So, and Kathy morning. is in. Morning. And Kathy, you are in uh, Singapore or Hong Kong? Where are you today? Oh yeah, I'm now in Singapore. Hong Kong. Okay. So I think I've got everyone. I'm gonna. Uh, I'm going to turn it over to Joe Zaro. Um, this is part of his brainchild of doing this. I just wanted to at least point out that tomorrow, not tomorrow, Thursday next week, we have a focus on, on restarts. And uh, we're going to have actually some interesting people, four or five CEOs from Ohio companies, as well as some Asian and European companies. Uh, you'll hear more about that later. Um, and we have, sorry, move my... Scroll too quickly. Um, and then we have uh, other events coming up. You'll see, you know, we did some past events on sports and media. We're going to be splitting those off. Um, we have the real estate is really the future of work and travel on the June 4th. Um, so I think there's a, and if you haven't gone, you can go to our, our page that gives the, the uh, synopses and we're putting, uh, yesterday's we're putting into video. So we're finally getting around to putting these podcasts out. So that'll be, that'll be good. Um, and then we're, as you know, in parallel, we're launching these alumni connecting type events. And um, that next Thursday, we'll have a, a, there's probably five different schools be on there. So, Joe, I'm going to hand it over to you. Um, oh, thanks, Mark. Uh, and hey, everybody, glad to see everyone's doing well. Um, you know, we've been doing these kind of more webcast style events now for since COVID kind of got kicked off. And obviously there's a lot going on in the world and the stock market is reflecting that lately. And so every time we have one of these kind of discussions about public equities, it tends to, you know, get cut short. And so we thought it would be really interesting and helpful for our network to kind of just allow that conversation to, to run and go a little bit deeper in this kind of deeper dive. So um, with that, we kind of thought it'd be valuable to bring together panel of six institutional investors to kind of share their insights of how they're positioning their portfolios 
um, and how they're just thinking about markets and, and specifically for this conversation, how they're utilizing concentration right now and why that's a valuable tool in these sort of markets. Um, and so, and, you know, why they're, how they're using that to generate alpha and differentiated returns. And so on the panel, we've got uh, Stephen Burke from ARS. He's a managing partner there. It's an institutional equity manager. They've got about $1.2 billion in uh, assets, and they've been in business for nearly 50 years. We've got Eric Lindbergh, uh, the CIO of the Knowlton Foundation. Um, we've also, we're also joined by Eric Anderson of Mill Trust, an emerging market specialist with about $600 million in assets. Uh, Andrew Randack uh, of Fieldpoint Private, and Sam Shinen, uh, a managing director who's covering a, a concentrated equity portfolio of the single-family office of Thomas H. Lee Capital. And we're also joined, uh, I believe, by Narja Zamani, a multifamily office uh, here in the U.S. Um, so with that, I'll kind of want to hand it over to Stephen to kind of give us a, a bit of a, a background and overview of, hey, what, what, what's going on in the macro environment? Uh, and then we'd like to kind of just keep it a little bit more free-flowing in a way, but um, we'll kind of help to guide the ship as necessary. And, you know, you know, participants, if you've got questions, there's a chat feature on the Zoom, which you can kind of log things in there until we're ready to kind of go into a Q&A. Um, but, you know, let's try to allow the panelists to kind of to, to, to go forward. So, Stephen, why don't you kind of kick us off? Thanks, Joe. You know, I worked at $2 trillion asset managers, and one of the things that I found fascinating at both places is how few high-conviction managers there were inside the shops. And what I realized um, throughout the years is that high-conviction management requires it to be in your DNA to actually want to be uh, away from where everyone else is and be in that uncomfortable position. So I just want to share with you a couple thoughts on on the market. I saw this statistic uh, about a couple weeks ago. Um, so the five largest companies in the S&P, we all know, they have a combined market cap now of about $5.17 trillion and a, a weight of about 20% of the index. But if you think about what's that equivalent to in the S&P, if you can move to the next slide, that market cap weighting is equivalent to, uh, Mark, could you advance, is equivalent to the bottom 350 names in the S&P 500. Um, so you're, you're looking at a combined market cap of 5.17 to 5.19. What's interesting though, we dug a little deeper and looked at what the, um, free cash flow per share was for the S&P. And I looked at this yesterday and for the S&P, it was roughly, um, uh, $147 per share. When I ran it for the five largest companies in the S&P, it's $104 per share. Combined. So when you think about the weighting of the S&P of the top five names and the, and the contribution to free cash flow per share of the total S&P, they're big names in weight and they're big names in, in the contribution. But this is 47, roughly 70% uh, of the free cash flow per share of the S&P is in these five companies. So when you want to know why people should be thinking about high conviction investing, in our view, that's part of the, that's part of the case right there. The hard part though of being a high conviction investor is you are either very fortunate to be in step with the market or very, uh, in the unfortunate position of being away. And that's why it's got to be in your DNA to be comfortable and confident to be so far away from what everyone else is doing. And, you know, the advent of indexing really exposed how many closet indexers there were in the, in the, uh, alleged active management space. Um, for our firm, we've been this way since our start and it starts with 
for us thinking about the macro environment and bring it down to what are the most investable secular themes and then from those secular themes executing on it. So if we can go to the next slide and those who've been on the call regularly, you've seen our big themes are around a few key areas. Um, actually, we jumped too far, but that's okay. Um, if, uh, the themes that we've been focused on are the, you know, tech around 5G, the cloud and semiconductor area. We think of tech more as a um, less of a sector and more as the businesses that are embracing technology to bring down their costs. We've had healthcare as a pretty significant weight um, for some time and have increased that, obviously, with the virus. Um, and then in the industrial and materials area, that's been primarily defense, um, not the traditional uh, industrial area. But the other thing is we don't own uh, right now six of the 11 S&P sectors have any, we don't have any exposure to. Um, so we're a very different type of uh, manager. And we've seen a lot of studies that say, you know, what's the right level of, of money to be high conviction and not high conviction. And a lot of people use 30 names or less. And that's what we do in this, in our flagship strategy. And this just gives you a, a representative uh, position of our all cap strategy, which is our flagship. We have about 45% of our firm's assets are in this strategy. And what you can see is how just how high conviction it is with the tech exposure, um, communications, and, you know, we're one sector now. Now we're much more combined. But the other thing is you got to get after it, not just on sectors, but are you putting the right weightings to the right names? And that's a big part of the of the challenge here. And when you're balancing off an all-cap strategy of going up and down the uh, capitalization structure, weightings and liquidity come into play there too. So we've been very comfortable being away from the market and uh, using secular themes. So by taking a longer term view, it allows us to stay um, with themes, even in those uncomfortable periods where you have underperformance. But we have a GIPS track record going back to 93 on this that um, has had some very healthy performance and as has our one, three and five year numbers. So there are times when it's really uncomfortable to be high conviction and you just have to be ready for that. And, and we've been, but um, you know, the themes I've talked about throughout are the same themes we're, we're implying and you can see them in the portfolio here. Um, so with that, Joe, I'll turn it back to you. Thanks, Stephen. Why don't we just kind of go through the panelists and maybe Eric Anderson, let's just take a minute each to kind of just introduce yourselves, your, your background and your firm, and then we can kind of start getting into uh, specific kind of questions, but why don't we just go through Eric and then maybe uh, Andrew, Sam, Nargis, and then Eric Lindbergh. Okay. Yeah. Can you hear me? Good. I'm off mute. Yes. Uh, uh, good afternoon. Yeah. So Mill Trust is a London and Singapore based asset management firm. Uh, we provide a range of institutional solutions across sort of four key areas, uh, global EM, agricultural farmland, science, technology, and innovation, and sustainable impact investments. Really, the original focus of the firm has been on EM, and we've been doing it as a firm for over 10 years now. Flagship product is our global EM fund. And it really, you know, the aim, unsurprisingly, is to give investors exposure to the EM story, uh, give exposure to companies that are leveraged to the key domestic themes. It's a bottom-up, concentrated, long-only strategy. Uh, but what's unique about it um, is our approach. Now, we have a multi-specialist approach, uh, and this really feeds in well with the conviction idea here is we, we identify locally-based specialist investment teams in each of the – these are third-party 
uh, local asset managers in each of the key regions of our universe. So this is China, India, Southeast Asia, Russia, etc. They have the boots on the ground. They have the access, the penetration, the stuff that you need to really have, have conviction in these companies. And each specialist team manages their country and, uh, and, por- and portfolio um, on our platform. So we have sleeves or buckets, if you will, where we appoint these teams to manage. And from my side as the global PM, I then allocate across these different accounts depending on our asset allocation view. And we'll tilt, uh, you know, depending on where the headwinds are and the tailwinds are. We'll do that on a quarterly basis. So that's our approach. And we feel that in order to really get a high conviction EM strategy, uh, that is the way to do it. So that's Mill Trust in a nutshell. Cool. Thank you. Uh, Andrew Randak, do you want to go next? Sure. Uh, good morning. Thank you for, for inviting me to participate. Um, I'm with Fieldpoint Private. We are essentially a multi-family office bank broker dealer, RIA, all wrapped into one. We're headquartered in Greenwich. Um, I used to work out of the Park Avenue office, but now I'm working out of the Park Slope office. So, uh, it's very different here nowadays. Um, we are not a security selector. We're a manager selector. So we work with families to define investment mandates, basically my perspective on a lot of this is asset liability matching. What is your liability in the future that can take any form? It can take the form of my daughter's tuition or a house in Palm Beach uh, in the future. And then we design an asset allocation approach, uh, which then drills down into specialty boutique managers. Uh, we have a manager platform uh, of about 60 different managers and about 80 different strategies. And the idea is that we have the latitude, depending on the market conditions, to be able to go to high conviction, uh, which is what we're doing right now, high concentration, high conviction managers when return dispersions are broad and offer a lot of uh, investment opportunities. Or like we saw uh, a few years ago with QE and uh, and a lot of the increased liquidity, uh, we tended to shift more towards beta exposures where the return on that incremental uh, dollar of, of asset management uh, was was higher. Um, but in general, when we choose managers, we want high conviction concentrated managers. Uh, so when we're in the active management space, um, one of the things that we try that, that is a turnoff for us are managers who get too deep into things like, uh, you know, attributions and contributions across segments and sectors and geographies. Uh, what turns us on are managers who start talking about return on invested capital in different business units within a company. Uh, we want corporate expertise. We want them to have high conviction about the companies they're buying, not about necessarily the sectors they're buying. And that's very important for us. Uh, and we take that same approach both on the, on the public equity and on the public debt side, uh, where we're more active in corporate credit than, uh, than anything else. So. Uh, and we advise families uh, both in the United States and uh, what I do mostly is Europe and South America. Great. Thanks, Andrew. Sam? Hi, Sam Shinen. Thank you for having me. I work in the family office of Thomas H. Lee, and within the family office, we're about 85 to 90% public equities, with the rest being venture investments and you know various other private investments. And I run a pool of capital there that focuses on software and services companies. And it's a, it's a pretty concentrated portfolio. I have 
anywhere from 15 to 30 longs at any given point in time and you know, zero to, to 30 shorts, all with very, very deep research uh, on, on the individual companies. We're, we're very, very highly specialized in this space. Great. Nargis, are you on? Do you want to give a quick intro? Yes, thank you. Um, thanks for having me, and um, hello to everybody. Um, I can't start my video, Joe. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I'm having technical issues. But uh, anyway, we are a multifamily office and um, broker-dealer, all-in-one, um, out of Tyson's, Virginia. And we offer bespoke solutions for our family Families, we're very opportunistic in our investment approach. Um, I would say we tend to be more on the conservative side. We partners with teams um, who are very conservative underwriting. Um, there's an alignment with our families, and there's strong governance. And this has been very, very useful as we're going through this um, challenge, these challenging times. Um, we are probably around 85% in the private space right now just uh, as a uh, tactical um, investment decision. Um, so that's, that's about it. Thank All you. Right. Thank you. And then last but not least, uh, Eric Lindbergh. Yeah, thanks, Joe. Hey, um, Eric Lindbergh, many of you have heard the intro before, so I'll, I'll uh, keep it short. I, um Original career, uh, from which I'm retired. I was, uh, uh, in private equity at the, uh, uh, last 10, I guess last 15 years partner of a couple of large private equity firms managing, you know, 10, 15 billion dollars in equity investing into the consumer space. Um, and largely, uh, largely extracted from that and, uh, and they spend, um, a lot of my time in philanthropy. Um, you know, sort of 50% of my time is managing capital for our family related foundation. We have about 250 million dollars. Under management, it's uh, it's all for philanthropic purposes. Um, th that is a highly discretionary uh, uh, pool of of capital, and um, we're able to really use it across all asset classes. We have exposure um, in in sort of every category that you could uh, that you could you could think of. Um, and I guess the only thing that I would say that is um, that is a little bit unique uh, and, and noteworthy is we have an unbelievably long uh, return. Um, uh, sort of return um, uh, threshold uh, in that we really are seeking uh, maximum returns for 20 plus years for the entire pool of capital um, because it's for the benefit of a, a very long-term philanthropic purpose. And so get to make some, some very long horizon investment decisions uh, with what we do with that as a, as a result. Got it. Thank you. So um, why don't we just kind of kick off the conversation? We'll just kind of go through that same order. But Stephen Burke, you guys have always since 1971 employed a more high conviction approach. But I'd be curious to understand why everyone on the panel kind of believes that right now in this kind of post-COVID environment, high conviction is a better strategy and, and, and kind of how you're utilizing that um, as a tool in your portfolios. Well, I, I, I think it's generally a um, I, I'm not in the uh, active or passive. I'm more of a active and passive person. I think for a lot of portfolios, having the mix makes sense. And I think you just shift the weightings between the two. Um, but for us, why, why uh, high conviction makes sense generally is um, there, are, there are usually only a few names driving the market returns and, and having 
um, a good sense if you're combining for us the secular themes with bottom-up research um, and you bring those two together and you tend to be away from the market, you're going to get higher returns. Um, you'll be out of step with returns in shorter periods, but um, over the long term, the, the secular themes do play out and uh, and that's where the best opportunities are. I think what we're seeing with COVID, though, is a, a destruction of uh, large segments of the economy for um, temporary impairment for some and more permanent impairment for others. And the environment is creating much more positive tailwinds for a narrower group of, of securities. So I think it's a it's a question of time frames and, and opportunity sets. Right now, it's more it's more apparent because of the virus how di- divergent the opportunities are in a in what is a highly bifurcated economy right now. Okay, thanks, Stephen. Uh, Eric Anderson. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with everything Stephen just said. So if I can just maybe extend it to EM, I mean, to give some context for EM, I might be stating the obvious here, but uh, you know, most of the EM strategies in our in our peer group tend generally track the EM uh, um, sort of EM strategies track the EM index. So, which is, for instance, the EMSCI EM index being the largest one. And the problem with the EM indices, um, indices in EM is that they're a poor reflection of really the key themes and the convictions you, you want in emerging markets, right? These better known companies are, you know, tend to be SOEs or global, global multinationals where EM exposure is secondary. A lot of them are expensive, crowded trades. So if you want to get more out of your EM, uh, inevitably you have to shift away from the index, be more high conviction yourself. And one of the things um, that I always point out in EM, we've got you know great businesses um, and you know great opportunity to be high conviction. I have a slide there that shows a, a table of the um, balance sheet of, of emerging markets. That's it, bottom right. Uh, here's the sort of top 100 corporates um, listed in each region, uh, X Financials. And if you look at the number of companies with a net cash balance sheet, China, Hong Kong, Taiwan, nearly over and nearly 50 percent of the companies have net cash on the balance sheet. So again, strong companies. And in a post-COVID environment, a lot of those companies are going to be positioned to consolidate, gain market share. Um, and I've sort of added a few developed countries there. Um, you know, but, um, but yeah, so, so it is a fascinating asset class where you have to differentiate given the nature of the indices and the nature of the, the large caps. Uh, and I'll talk about the concentration maybe a bit later on this slide here. Um, but you know that that's how we do it, and uh, and that's how you do it in EM. Thanks, Andrew. It sounds like you guys are more picking up, uh, you know, investing in managers who are employing more of a concentrated approach, and you kind of covered a little bit. But do you want to add anything? Yeah, sure. I mean, w- one of the things that's very clear there's well, there's a lot of things that are very clear. One is is that company guidance is extremely difficult right now. Uh, that you're not getting the communication that you used to be able to get from the C-suite because simply they don't have the visibility. So when you've got so many sectors and so many companies that lack visibility and when you have capital that is all of a sudden scarce, uh, you really need to concentrate your bets on those where your visibility is higher and where the cost of capital or the access to capital is, is much lower. Um, and so that is what's created in a lot of ways the return dispersion that we're trying to take advantage of by being more, more concentrated. I was comparing, um, 
I was looking back on a we have we have a weekly investment sort of uh, summary that, that that we prepare, and I was comparing yesterday's to May eighteenth, uh, twenty nineteen, and it was amazing to see how the sectors, the industries, the differentiation has really blown out over the last year. To give you guys a, a, an idea, the gap uh, a year ago on a on a year to date basis between large cap growth and large cap value. Uh, was 4.4%. That was the return differential, uh, between those two segments of the market. Uh, yesterday it was 21%. So you have a, it's a five time, uh, increase or five factor increase in the dispersion of returns between the large cap growth and large cap value. Uh, and obviously that's being driven by a lot of what Stephen's shown, uh, on his slides. And if you look at the number one to number 10 sectors within the S&P 500, a year ago, the dispersion or the difference in returns on a year-to-date basis was 17.3%. Uh, yesterday, it was 39.3%. So there is that access to capital, uh, even though rates are basically zero, uh, has gotten so much more competitive that you need to be with companies that are growing, which aren't that many. There need to be visit companies with visibility into their growth, which there are simply aren't that many. So you need to be more selective, not just to make more money, but to preserve the capital that your families and your endowments, et cetera, have entrusted you. So. Great. Thanks. Sam? I think that um – from a bottoms up standpoint, this is obviously one of the most treacherous market environments in history. So if you're not concentrated and you don't understand the underlying position as well, how can you possibly effectively triage the portfolio? How can you possibly eliminate weak spots? And then, you know, how do you take advantage of dislocations, right? Like over the course of the past couple of months, there have been unbelievable dislocations. And if you don't know the names and you don't know the economics, how do you how do you think about that? How do you how do you not get whipped around by the tremendous volatility that we've all seen? And then there are obviously um, massively accelerating advantages to the to the current winners, right? But how do you think through who those winners really are and how much to pay? It's very easy to just buy Zoom at fifty times revenue, but that may not ultimately be a great investment strategy. And how do you? identify some of the non-obvious winners, which is where I think the bulk of the excess return will come from in the next couple of years. So I think that there, there are really enormous advantages to being concentrated and, and, and focused in this environment. Right. Yeah, good point. Nargis, it sounds like you're largely out of um, the public equity space at the moment from a tactical decision, but I guess how are you utilizing concentration even then within your, your private book or, or kind of maybe, maybe walk through that? Right. So, um, we're, we have always been more into the private space. However, back in February, one of our managers, um, which is a merchant cash advance, um, investment started seeing issues with their with the merchants and the merchants were not there they were starting to default on their payments and a lot of them had been impacted by the COVID virus back in already they were um, impacted by the supply chain um, back in February so we took advantage of that and we actually um, got out of the public market at that point which we always thought was a 
with frothy valuations anyway. And we started buying once the market was down 30%. And we went into just passive ETF um, strategy then. Um, so at that point in time, I was happy to kind of be a um, bottom fisher with just uh, with just regular ETFs. I would say that that's harder to do now. And um, now it's it's time to look for more um, higher conviction um, managers to help. Um, so shifting a little bit there to the to the more high more active management, um, still staying away from hedge funds, um, staying away definitely from the long shorts, um, and then on the private side, really focused on uh, private credit. And you can pick up a lot of distressed private credit right now, but anything with liquid and cash flowing, I think cash is king, and I think it's. Uh, when I'm looking at the public uh, individual names as well, I'm very focused on the amount of cash they have on the balance sheets. Great. Eric? Yeah, I mean, so, um, you know, to, to maybe stir up some um, some specific follow-ups from other folks on the panel um, and, um, and and to throw a couple of ideas out. Um, you know, and, and I'll, I'll just very quickly say, you know, what, what we're up to in general, I mentioned that we have a very long-term um, a very long-term investment horizon for returns with our with our philanthropic capital, uh, and so we, we actually don't um, don't engage generally in in market timing um, and, and as strategies. I also um, am have have been for 25, 30 years extremely extremely skeptical. It isn't about th- this time period where we have dislocation and distress. I am always extremely skeptical of all forms of public equity stock picking and we don't we don't need to go into the background everyone will know what the argument is going to be which is that that when you look very broadly very few managers um, are able to demonstrate a consistent consistent ability on a net cost adjusted basis to just beat indexes and there's a bunch of technical reasons we can argue as to why but but the reality is very few people have the ability to be looking at dozens and hundreds of names and knowing something special and differentiated that allows them to have alpha in the way that they that they select investments. Like I, I just I I absolutely do not believe there is data that supports um uh, supports that in in the longer term. I'm I'm interested in folks that you know that, that want to counter argue that that it is possible to simply be better than everybody else in a highly efficient market in the public space. Um so so my, my high conviction is. Um, that, uh, that, that, that I generally avoid having convictions in the public space. I will say, um, th- though, that, that, you know, that, that it is, um, it, it is smart to, and, and I follow kind of, it's almost, you know, it's very old school. It's sort of like a Peter Lynch and, uh, and Warren Buffett mentality of, you know, when, when, and, and other folks are clearly much, you know, around financial management are a lot smarter than I am. Like, I think I can be smart about a handful of things, maximum, uh, maybe. And so, um, so I wait really selectively um, for for places where we want to place big bets based on some somewhat proprietary insight. Um, and you know, I, I, I skew towards um, towards the private side in making those uh, those assessments because I've, I've 25 years of experience on the in the private equity space of managing capital and seeing everything that happens around that space. I am highly confident of my ability to render good judgment on managers in that space. Um, we have a hedge fund strategy. I, I, I don't know a damn thing about hedge funds based on, on my personal experience. And I'm not going to know something about hedge funds based on some advisors 
um, you know, uh, uh, giving me some some pitch books and presentations about how how hedge funds work. We actually have a therefore a very very quantitatively defined hedge fund strategy that is very specific and looks for a very very narrow type of manager that is non correlated with with public market indexes, and it's an entirely quant strategy that, that we use in hedge funds. I, I will say on. Um, and then folks that have, that have heard me over the last uh, month and a half say that I, I have seen a huge disconnect between underlying data about the, the virus crisis and what people seem to perceive and be saying about it. Um, I, I made an exception. I, I just, I guess I just lied, uh, three minutes ago and said I never believe in market timing. Um, uh, starting on March 13th, I, I began an extremely aggressive, um, a- aggressive buying program on on U.S. call options, on indexes, uh, because what, what I saw was a, a level of fear and panic that, that rose to the level of irrationality. We've now exited those positions, but but after making, you know, two and a half X capital deployed in a in a four to, four to six week period, because I became convinced that the market has honestly gone crazy and it was time to bet against people who were running around in a panic. Um, so, so I, I think, uh, Joe, I'll sort of close out, you know, with, with, um, with, with, with this maybe a, a question within high conviction, uh, for, you know, for everyone here believes in it. How, how many, how many names, how many ideas, how much, how much high conviction can you have, uh, and how many good ideas can you, can you have at one time? My, my argument would be like, hey, single digits is, is, is what I'm capable of understanding on a differentiated basis. Um, and, 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 you know, if you're, if you're talking about trying to have high conviction and the ability to generate alpha and above average returns across dozens of different decisions, I, I'm really curious as to how people do that. Gotta love Eric, man. Thank, thank you for uh, stirring up the pot on these panels. It's great. Um, that kind of will drive us into maybe this kind of active versus passive kind of conversation and, and maybe to the, you know, the, the, the investors on, on the panel. Why are you guys worth your weight in fees and, and kind of, you know, how are you able to kind of add alpha um, and, and how have you done that? So maybe, I don't know, Stephen, do you want maybe want to kind of kick, kick us off? I know you kind of mentioned that you guys, you know, you guys have a very long track record um, in addition to you guys use active and passive strategies. But um, maybe do you want to kind of respond to Eric and then, you know, we'll have uh, Eric Anderson and then maybe Sam kind of go through that as well. Well, you know, the, the interesting thing about the industries that's evolved is, uh, before uh, indexing really took off in the in the mid '80s to late '80s, I, I, I was at Dreyfus and I started an index fund at Dreyfus to chase Vanguard, which is what firms in the asset management business do. Uh, they copy and then they try and chase. I just think we had too many we had too many managers in the industry, um, and and most of them weren't prepared to to manage money for clients effectively. I think there were just too many people. So the numbers skewed towards, you know, the percentage of managers that underperform is quite high. Um, I think that um, that at any point in time, uh, there are certain managers that would never have a shot at outperforming because they don't have the, uh, the capabilities or the um, investment approach that allows them to do it. Most people were just, really closet indexers in the industry for the, for the longest period of time. It, it's actually what um, chased me out of the big asset managers is they were not really trying to have a point of view or um, actively manage strategies. I think they were closet indexers. Um, so I think the numbers justify what Eric said. Um, 
Although I think that we actually have a um, have a, an industry that's getting smaller in terms of the number of of managers and the firms are consolidating, and I think that actually um, will contribute to a return to um, a better understanding of can people actually outperform. I think where you get performances um, is taking a longer term view and to have a have a perspective on it. We actually move up and down the the market cap structure, and as you know, Eric, the, it gets much less efficient the lower you go down in cap structure. Um, so being an all-cap manager, we're able to uh, combine the best of large-cap names when large-cap makes sense and, and smaller-cap names that you get some higher growth typically, um, and that's where you, you move away. And, and I think the view of being active, I, I think most managers weren't active. I think they were were really not actively managing anything other than trying to stay in the job for a longer period of time. Um, so I think we're I think there are opportunities to do it. I think the numbers are you can't argue with, but I think if you understand behind the numbers, um, there were just too many people in the business, and we've seen that in every every area of our business. Um, when hedge funds were outperforming public markets, it's because there are a few people chasing a smaller number of opportunities. And that went away when everyone chased the same thing. And now in the private equity space, the last bit of time, you've seen everyone chasing private equity and the opportunity to be um, to add value diminishes that way, too. So I think it's the law of numbers. But for us, um, we think having a, a macro view and, and combining it with bottom up research and keeping the number of names down. You know, the biggest portfolio we have in terms of number of names is about 35 we have a small cap strategy that is under 20. We have our all cap has under 30. And we have a, a focused ETF strategy that uses eight ETFs. A lot of them are, um, are industry ETFs, not sector ETFs. So there are ways that you can work around that. But for us, it's very, uh, it's very much about, um, knowing who we are and how we operate and knowing what the other people are doing and not caring. Um, you know, we we just really try and take our own point of view to it. And it's worked for, you know, we've outperformed since 93 by a pretty healthy margin net of fees. So um, we're comfortable with that. But you, you have to be comfortable being out of step, too. And that means you need clients who are comfortable being out of step. And that's not as easy to find. Mm-hmm. Got it. Thank you. Eric uh, Anderson, you want to weigh in? Yeah, I mean, I mean, EM is is a lot easier to grasp in terms of inefficiencies, right? So it is much less efficient in terms of information getting to the markets. You've got barriers to entry. I wrote down a few here: language, travel, uh, not being on the ground, um, which is the way we set up our, our EM product the way we did, despite people saying multi-specialist strategies never work and it's it's an extra layer. I said, you know, forget that. Think about it. In terms of what do you want exposure to? Do you want these strong companies down the market cap spectrum, small caps, mid caps? You're not going to find them sitting in New York or London necessarily. You're going to find them by being in Mumbai, in, in Shanghai, et cetera. So, so in terms of, um, uh, you know, barriers to entry and efficiencies, I think EM is, is certainly a place where you can, where public, where active management makes a lot, a lot of sense. If I can just point you to one of the slides, um, you know, one of the things about EM, it, it's quite almost counterintuitive. You know, we get new, uh, that's it, that's the one. Um, you know, we've had Saudi Arabia, Argentina, we've had new entrants come in, right, into the EM index. It's constantly evolving. But, you know, counterintuitively, it's getting more concentrated. 
You know, I'm looking here at bottom right. You got top three countries, 65%. Top two sectors, 50%. Top four stocks, 20%. You know, and this is, you know, and so you, you look at that and you're thinking, well, that, that's, um, you know, there's a very few handful uh, of stocks, <laughs> sectors, and countries that are driving performance. And if you look elsewhere, you know, over 1,200 stocks in the index, so this is MSCI EM index, uh, have less than 0.5% weight. I mean, so the opportunity is there. Uh, and uh, if you look at our portfolio, and we're not contrarian, you know, we're picking strong companies, high-quality businesses. Uh, none of our top 10 stocks are, at, are overlap with the index, and you won't find that anywhere else. We don't, have, we don't hold Alibaba. We don't hold Tencent. We don't hold a lot of these stocks that maybe, you know, everyone else holds. Um, but, you know, why? Not because we don't like those companies, but because we're finding better companies elsewhere. Property management services in China is a booming, booming sector. You know, we're up 70% this year in that sector um, and other sectors as well I can talk about. But um, certainly you know, there, there are some, some advantages. Uh, we think active is the way to do it. Great. Sam? I think I think that I agree with with Eric that it's really not possible to have high conviction in a large number of names. I think that the markets, especially over the past decade, the public markets have, have changed considerably, and it's just a lot more difficult to have any kind of real informational edge. That's a fact. Um, that said, I think that there is a lot of value to be added in public markets. I, I think public markets are a function of pattern recognition. You have to be able to make bets when the odds are in your favor. How do you make that determination? You have to have some kind of deep <coughs> context to be able to make decisions in a better way than your peers. Every day that you hold a stock, you're making an active decision to hold it or sell it. And I think, you know, to the extent that you have that deep context and you have a systematic process for making good decisions that is data driven, that, that somehow mitigates, you can certainly produce uh, a significant amount of alpha. Everyone can't produce alpha, uh, obviously, um, but there are always going to be many, many funds that, that do produce alpha. And I think, the market is, in fact, a very inefficient place, right? Like the volatility of the past couple of months, um, I think, it is, is the greatest evidence of that, right? You know, every the, the great thing about public markets relative to private markets is that things are marked to market every day. There's always volatility and always opportunities to make decisions where other people are making the opposite decision. And if you can do that effectively, I think there's just like a, there's a lot of value. Great. Andrew, I don't know if you want to weigh in. I'm just giving you the optionality here, but um, no pressure. Yeah, no, I mean, there, there, there's a bunch of themes and topics that people have touched on. One is I see a lot of com comments on the um, on the chat about small cap and is small cap, you know, what are, what are people doing in the small cap space? We were overweight small cap last year based on valuation. Uh, we had invested – with uh, two new managers who were highly concentrated. One was the dividend growth manager, which is probably the worst place to be in any segment of the market uh, because dividends across the board are being questioned. Uh, and that really hasn't come back uh, as fast as, as, as other things have. But if you look on the small cap space, um, you know, on a, on an earnings basis, 
they've basically the consensus for it estimates, which I'm looking at right here, you're going back to 2013, 2012 levels of operating earnings per share. So eight years gone. Um, but when you look on the margins basis, uh, which I was just had on my screen, you're back, uh, the S&P 600, which is the reference we're looking at here. More expected margins are actually even below 2009 trough levels. So the expectations for small cap are catastrophic at this point in time. Um, and right now, even though I haven't, I haven't lightened up on those bets because, you know, we, we made that bed and we're sleeping in it and we have capital allocated to very good companies. Um, I'd be hesitant to add to small cap. If I didn't have a high conviction view on the state of the economic or the path of economic recovery, uh, particularly in the United States, uh, it, it is so tightly wound uh, together with the labor market, uh, retail, retail sales, et cetera, et cetera, that uh, that small cap is a treacherous place. And you have to be you have to be with a very high conviction people who are worrying about balance sheet risk at the end of the day. Great. Right. Why don't we take some time now, maybe, and kind of express, you know, how you guys are getting concentrated. And if you want to spend some time talking about either sectors or themes, that's fine. Um, but also, if you want to talk about specific names that you really like or are a fan of, you know, please, you know, you're at your discretion. You know, maybe Stephen, walk through. You know, I know you kind of walked through on a high level some of those um, sectors that you guys liked, but. Um, let's kind of get into it, you know, where you guys are positioning the portfolio and then also how do you risk manage that portfolio when you are taking that concentration risk? Well, let's start with the risk part because risk means a lot of different things to different people. Um, and it really depends. Like, you know, Eric's, if, if you could find a bunch of investors who had a, a, a multi-decade decade view of risk like Eric might have, that's, that's, you know, that's rare in, in, in our industry, but, um, but it, it, it matters how you think about risk based, based on that. Um, you know, is risk underperforming the index or is risk, um, uh, you know, doing what you're trying to do, um, and thinking about the risk of the businesses or the earnings and the like. So we look at risk on multiple levels. We think about risk from our macro views being wrong. Um, and what's the probability of that and what's the impact if they are? We think about the risk to the individual portfolio's earnings. Um, and then we think about the risk for the overall portfolio relative to the guidelines that were provided by the clients. And, and we have to combine all those and we're constantly probability waiting. Um, so for us, it's really about the risk of being wrong on, on the outlook and on the earnings power of the companies. Um, particularly in an environment where growth is so scarce and you're trying to bet on um, companies achieving above market growth to to generate the returns. And and you're seeing that with the extremes that Andrew was just highlighting in the small cap area. And the only way companies are going to um, meet expectations is that their earnings grow back into their multiples um, because the multiples have run away given the drop in earnings. So it really for us is about determining the difference between earnings and um, and earnings power and understanding who can earn who can earn what you think they're going to earn versus what their reported earnings are in the short term. I guess the themes you guys have heard us talk about for, for a while. So I, I just think that when we think about 
the thematic element we're looking at over the next couple of years and we're differentiating between trading and investing and and neither is it that's not a pejorative for either one it's just that you have different expectations whether you're looking out over a longer term or trying to trade a market and we tend to avoid trading the market what we do is we hold higher levels of cash to deal with volatility and take advantage of it so i think that's the really the key elements for us in thinking about risk and managing it and even right now we're probably at 12% cash um in uh, almost across the board in our firm and we've been that way for about between 8 and 15 for a better part of the last 3 years because the volatility is giving you great opportunities to pick up stuff on the cheap because of the swings that we've had. So, Eric? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, we, we look at risk. Um, well, there's two components, right? So the bottom up stock picking and the way we address it is when we buy stocks that come back. So knowledge, that's how we address it. Uh, the turnover of our team is under 20%. Uh, so, you know, we're active, but we buy and hold the strong companies that we, we know about. I mean, from a top down, you know, the asset allocation side, I mean, if, if there's anything, you know, this, this is the mother of all stress tests this year, right? You know, Warren Buffett said, someone mentioned Warren Buffett earlier, I'll quote him again, you know, saying, you know, when, when the tide goes out, you see you're still wearing a bathing suit and who isn't? Uh, and we've seen it. I mean, on the country level, I mean, it's just phenomenal. You know, see the countries that have, you know, that are managing their, uh, you know, managing their countries well and those that aren't, the good health systems, the, good, the ones that don't have good health systems, et cetera. Uh, both on the company and uh, country and, and corporate level. Uh, so, so this has been a great exercise to shake out, you know, who hasn't been properly investing in high quality companies who said they were, who hasn't been looking at maybe some of the macro views. So, uh, it's been a great, uh, and, and we have been doing that. And so, you know, so performance has reflected the sort of our, our work behind that. So, um, and, uh, um, and so in terms of some of the sectors, uh, that I want to talk, I, I mentioned the, um, property management services sector, and I want to talk about that one again, because I think, um, you know, we have 30% of our book is in that sector. Um, it's a, you know, very domestic focused sector, mainly in China, uh, high visibility on earnings. One of the, you know, you can't say that about most sectors and companies these days, but this is, um, a sector that has been, uh, less impacted or not impacted by, by the coronavirus. Uh, property management services companies are companies that come in and do the gardening, the repair, they manage the tenants. They don't own the land, so there's no overhead. They just do the maintenance. Uh, so it's a stable, reoccurring revenue stream. Uh, and we own about five companies in that sector. Uh, and it's very fragmented as well. Another area we like, we like to see fragmented areas, uh, allow for consolidation, picking the right winners, because we feel we can do that. So, uh, that's a sector we like a lot. Another sector we like a lot is uh, online education. Uh, and, you know, we, we know about this. Those who have kids have sort of painfully dealt with shifting to more digital channels. Um, and, and, and that is the, and that's the reality. Probably today, uh, University of Cambridge here in London said that all of next year is all online. For, for, you know, that's the university level. But even coming out of primary school, that's, you know, touch and go whether they come back to school. So we're investing some really high quality businesses in Brazil who have a great platform for education. So I think that's a really interesting sector. Um, and but you've got to pick back the winners there because there is a lot of different, um, different companies. So uh, that's what I'll say uh, from that side. Great. Andrew or Sam, sorry. Go ahead, Andrew. 
Um, yeah, I, I, I wanted to pick up on a, on a question that Simon just just chatted, which is an excellent one about following the large cap companies, uh, sort of the leaders of the of the market now, and then stepping into into other tiers of the market later on. That's exactly what we're expecting to happen. Growth is going to be very hard to come by uh, in any industry, uh, X the the obvious ones that everybody's already probably invested in. So you're going to have, you'll probably have a, a significant overshooting uh, in that area, uh, particularly over the next, we'll call it three to four months. We don't expect that to change anytime soon. Um, but at some point, the, the, the winners of the losers will start to appear. Uh, and that is, and I, I don't remember if it, um, somebody made a comment. Uh, I don't remember who it was. Uh, I think it was Sam. That, um, that that part of the market will be where the outsized returns come from, uh, in this next phase is which are those winners of those losers. And I think it's still a little early, but it's not early to start looking for them. That's for sure. Sam? Hey, sorry. I'm a uh, Zoom rookie and I'm, I keep having trouble finding the unmute button on the chat. Um, yeah, so, so, you know, first off, from a bottom-up standpoint, we spent a lot of time in the first few weeks of the crisis really triaging the book to understand what may have changed with respect to our baseline understanding of the companies, right? Like, you know, there were, there were lots of previously very solid companies that might have had their medium-term growth curve bent by the fact that, you know, they have some segment that's 20 or 30 percent of the business that has like zero revenue for two months or an 80 percent decline in revenue and you know do you have to let go of salespeople? do you have to do things that otherwise hamper you know your intermediate and and potentially long-term trajectory and by long term i say you know five years right um and then you know how do you think about um dealing with those situations, right? Like what's the likelihood that it's going to come back? How much flexibility does the company have, et cetera? Are they, are they generally shareholder friendly? How do they think about raising equity? We spent like a lot of time, um, you know, really working through the portfolio to understand whether the underlying earnings power had changed, right? Because I think this is, this is like a, a really significant event that many that no management team has ever seen, right? Like what company is prepared for an 80% decline in revenue, right? And then, you know, if you think about the, the universe in which I operate, there are a lot of potential winners, right? Like application software companies, many of these companies have had their growth pulled forward by, by, by five years, right? Because companies that, that specialize in digital commerce, digital customer interactions, these are all things that, that, that people need in, in the new world. And they're, you know, more obscure things like, you know, companies that sell banking applications to, to community banks where previously, you know, nobody would have ever made a commercial loan without shaking someone's hand and looking them in the eye. Now they need an application to be able to do that virtually because maybe they can't do the in-person business, uh, going forward. And there's like a lot of stuff like that out there, but it requires very detailed thinking about the go-to-market, right? Like, how do you actually sell to these people? 
can you do inside sales or do you need to do long implementations in the field, which might be delayed? Is the product really strategic to customers or is it something that was strategic uh, six months ago and might be put on the back burner as, as CIOs look to cut costs because companies are, are, are struggling with revenue, right? There's like a lot of, uh, you know, interplay of cross currents that need to be effectively managed in this environment that, you know, I don't think anybody has had to do previously, even in 08, right? Um, so it's been a very interesting process, but one filled with, with I think, lots of opportunity. Okay, great. Um, Eric, any, any other kind of comments or, or, or thoughts right now? Uh, and that's to, to me, uh, to me, Joe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, so, uh, I, I, look, I, I really value this conversation. There's, uh, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, um, flatter everyone who said things that, that are super smart. There have been a lot of, I think, really good observations here. Um, and it, it's, it's, I think, Stephen, you made a point, uh, that, that I will, uh, that I will powerfully echo, and, and many of you guys have, uh, and, and this is based on, 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 you know, uh, uh, very in-depth career exposure to this. You know, I started working in, in the private equity space in 1994 at Blackstone, um, in, in the mid nineties and, and, and then saw, uh, you know, as a junior guy, like deal making across a number of these firms in the nineties, the early two thousands. And, and I also saw private equity deal making in, in, in 2016, um, in, in the same space. And the, the, I wouldn't even call it an evolution because it was more radical than that. You know, the, the, the nature of finding alpha, of finding the ability to, um, to, to create really attractive equity returns when, when there are, when you have six competitors, um, right? Sort of the supply demand dynamics of there's six people with $500 million under management and private equity in 1994. Um, and, and, and the, the different environment when there are now thousands of yahoos, um, you know, all who see everyone who's seen everyone and their brother now has a billion dollar fund bidding, right? Like that, that, that sounds, you know, people know theoretically what happens. Like I, I saw what happened. The, 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 the that industry in, in multiple categories within alternatives management. Uh, have been wildly transformed, um, in, 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 in a, in a, in a 10, 15, 20 year period. The one thing that I think is, um, is a little bit interesting and in that, that I would say everyone should always through their life and their career should have like their antenna and their radar on a hundred, set on a hundred percent to monitor is there is kind of a, a boiling frog dynamic that, 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 um, all of us have a hard time doing, which is realizing how these, all of these individual categories, and when you're talking about, you know, you're talking about emerging markets, or you're talking about MES investing, or you're talking about the early days of hedge funds, all these different categories, there is a heyday when, when there's a small number of participants and it's a really cool, risky new area and everyone is cranking out 15 and 20 and 25% IRRs in their deals because there's no other capital and there's no other people competing with you. It's really, really difficult for any of us to have, um, like the acute attention to see how those, um, how all of these sectors change and they become less desirable as a, as a, as a bunch of people get, get a, get sort of drawn in. And, and now you have 500, not five people in any of these categories. And it's, it's been exactly the same trend across every of these individual, um, you know, every one of these individual little spaces. And, you know, and it, and it brings me back to, you know, kind of a, a point I had from, from the beginning, you know, which is, um, you know, which is one, you know, having, um, having very, very narrow focus 
um, and, and, and the ability to have that conviction, but also being nimble in knowing when it's time to move on and move away from a category. Like, I can't tell you how much less fun it was to be doing private equity transactions in 2015 as opposed to 1995. Uh, but it applies across all of these, all of these different spaces. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think it's, it, it, it creates, I think, um, you know, a, a challenge of figuring out, like, hey, maybe it's time, and we were talking at the beginning of this, of, um, of finding the ability to create a lot of value in the cannabis space. That's obviously a very disorganized space without very many sophisticated participants. That's a place that you're going to see above average equity returns for, for a lot of, for a lot of investors. Sam, you also made a, um, a, a comment about, you know, being very, I think, analytical and patient. Uh, and, and I, I, I almost thought you were going to tell us, um, that you were describing a card counting, uh, strategy and how to beat the house. But but that, that level of like patience and analytics, I think, also drives the ability for uh, for some people to consistently be able to you know to, to beat the market by by actually taking that little bit of a longer term disciplined analytical um, view and and being very judicious about about where you're focused. If I could just uh, Andrew here uh, add a little point to the I've heard the I've heard the expression alpha beat the market uh, outperformance. Um, quite a lot, which is all, which is what we want from, from all of our portfolios, all of our companies, all of our managers, depending on, on, on how you achieve that. Um, but at the end of the day, it's important not to lose, lose sight of the fact that there is an object, investment objective, which is generally driven by a family's idiosyncratic needs and desires. Uh, and being too, uh, focused on alpha beating outperforming, you can lose sight of that investment objective and also lose sight of the fact that that asset class or this asset class that we're talking about, public equities and really large cap public equities, which has been the dominant uh, theme here, um, is one element of an investment program that is designed to achieve that objective. So sometimes I'm perfectly happy underperforming if I know that what I'm doing in that underperformance with that manager is wholly consistent with the overall investment objective and the investment strategy we have for the family. So uh, I think that's something not to lose sight of. If I could just add, Andrew, that that's a great point. The other thing is that the role of liquidity in the portfolio changes as market conditions change. And, uh, for a while, nobody cared about liquidity, and you never care about it until you care about it, and it's usually too late. And so I think the idea of, of a well-designed portfolio allows you to get through a lot of the sins that occur inside timing and, and other issues that naturally naturally go on in our markets, particularly when the structure of the markets have changed so much. You know, the Wilshire 5000 started with 5,000 companies peaked at about 7,500 companies and is now down below 3,500 companies in that index. So we've gone through big shifts. The average holding period dropped from like eight years in the 60s to, you know, just under three years in 1980 to now it's seconds, depending on if you're looking at high frequency traders or um, regular investors, you know, typical long investors. So there's so much different dynamics going on in the markets that, you actually have to be able to either sort out or you're looking for short term or you're going to manage to a, a reasonable time horizon. And all these factors are really shifting, which makes it hard for allocators to, to determine. But it starts with having a great foundation for your allocation.
and it, it has that that's the one thing that really hasn't changed throughout the whole time. Thank you. Um, and we just said, so let's just kind of want to open it up for more general questions. I saw in the chat, Tom Jump just asked a question, kind of more talking about, you know, um, how will the and when will the upcoming election really begin to influence how investors are looking at public markets as, you know, over the most recent past, COVID-19 has really driven much of that sentiment. Um, but, you know, when when is the, the kind of election going to really weigh in on, on people's views of the public markets? And then from there, let's just kind of open it up to questions, Q&A, just generally. Well, I can quickly make a comment on uh, China-U.S. relationships in relation to the election. Um, you know, you know, I think, um, you know, we we have 40 years now of China and the U.S. sort of coexisting. Right. Uh, even though they have, uh, you know, their difference with ideology, it's sort of put that aside and agreed. Listen, for for economic case, let's cooperate. Right. So. Um, but that that is that is coming a little bit to to you know to an end now. There's been more confrontation lately, uh, and I think regardless of who wins the election in November, Biden or Trump, because I don't think this is a Trump thing, the confrontation will stay the same. I think the U.S. has embarked on that route, and there will be a continue to be confrontation. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna stop there and say, but it's not a new Cold War, right? It, we're not. It, this is this is not like it was uh, previously. The reason why is during the actual Cold War, actually, there was a sense of you know coordination between the you know political establishment, business establishment, and cultural establishment. Right, everyone was coordinated. Uh, but today, that's not the case. The political establishment, business establishment, are not on the same page. You know, you don't just unwind you know global supply chains. You've got you know semiconductor businesses in the U.S. industries in the U.S. that are relying on Chinese demand. So. A lot of that, you know, the decoupling will not happen uh, because business interests and establishment will prevent that from happening. Uh, so, so that will stay the same. Uh, but there will there will be this confrontation going forward, uh, regardless of the election. So, so just just to add a bit of EM flavor to that to that question. Yeah, I, I think one of the questions, if I could just touch on it a little bit, is that. Um, I think regardless of who wins, they're going to they're going to have a really difficult time raising taxes, given the economic backdrop that we're facing. Um, if if the Democrats swept even, they would they could take away some of the things that gnaw at them, like carried interest and other things like that and close some loopholes. But across the board, tax increases are going to be very difficult in the in the near term and, and would be actually a ticket to getting thrown out of office at the earliest chance possible, given what I think the economy can withstand in the in the next two or three years. Um, so I, I and then it gets to the other issue, which is how long, you know, is the reversal of technology and healthcare, which had big bullseyes on them from a lot of uh, the Democratic candidates running? Um, is that changed given what the virus has done? Um, I think there's still going to be a lot of pressures. I just think the math of the country doesn't work right now, and, and we need a, a complete reset, which I don't think either party is capable of doing, unfortunately. Um, and we probably need a new next uh, greatest generation to deal with the problems that we're dumping on our kids. Um, but I think it's going to be a, a problem that we're going to have to kick the can down the road again on dealing with some of the real issues and 
I don't think it matters who's in office as much unless there is a a far a bigger swing than I'm expecting to the far left coming out of it. All right. Uh, any any other questions? Just kind of anyone want to voice a, a question to the panel? Why don't I help, Joe? Uh, the question is, what would be the developments which would completely change uh, the forecasts um, the panel members have now? What are the outliers we have to focus on? I think one of the problems, and an excellent question, is, is given the lack of visibility that we have, um, pretty much everything is an outlier. Uh, the list of winners is very small. The list of clear identifiable winners is pretty small. Um, there are a lot of areas that are very beaten up that are unjustifiably beaten up. Uh, some people would say parts of the REIT. Ella, REIT landscape have been overwhelmingly punished, uh, particularly when a lot of REIT managers are owning digital assets, uh, things like DLR and and uh, tower companies. So they've been the baby's been thrown out with the bathwater. Um, but again, it's it's what what I mentioned earlier. It's who are the losers? Uh, who are the winners of the of the quote unquote losers? Uh, everybody who's not bang right now. Um, but again, we were on a call earlier today with a technical shop and we were talking about equity risk premium and they finally just gave in and they threw in the towel and they said, just don't worry about equity risk premium for a while because there's no way you're going to be able to calculate it. It has almost no value at this point in the, in the cycle or in this part of this point of the market uh, environment. You don't know what the earnings are. You don't know what the visibility is. You don't know what the economic damage is. We don't know what 50 million unemployed looks like in terms of consumption. We've never seen that before, not with the type of consumption and the complexity and dynamics of consumption that we have today in the United States. We don't know what another $3 trillion economic package does for the economy. So there's that lack of visibility, lack of understanding, lack of the, you know, the dynamics among those segments that it's really tough that everything is in that bucket at the end of the day of, uh, you know, potential risks, but potential opportunities as well. All right. Thank you. Um, and then last, I'll just kind of just to kind of close this out, unless other people have questions. Um, where are some kind of things that you guys are either excited about right now or a little bit cautious and fearful on in terms of the overall uh, market environment and kind of what's either getting you excited or scared? I think you have to be excited about the um, the way technology is is being used to help accelerate the timelines for getting solutions out, whether it's um, testing um, or treatment or a vaccine. I think the the speed and and the pace of that is is impressive, and it actually is critical to what happens next. Um, but I just think uh, we've had a view as as a firm that the third wave of the internet that's that's in place now um, and has been in place for a couple of years is about to go through a period of acceleration that um, 
We think people are, have always had a hard time adjusting to change and technological change and always underestimate it. So we think there's so much on the come in the next couple of years that um, people will underappreciate it, even though that's the area that's getting uh, a lot of attention. Um, uh, so that's uh, kind of on the positive side. On the negative side, when you have the two largest economies um, in a in a disruptive mode, um, that's not good for anybody, and and that that has to be a worry um, because, quite frankly, the the approaches that are being taken are not necessarily rational. It's very emotional and very politicized by what's going to make sense for the next six months and. You know, fortunately, the Chinese have a longer term view and they are smart enough to know that a lot of what's being thrown at them is for the election um, as opposed to reality. There is a bunch of reality and they're starting to get bigger backlash from other countries besides the U.S. Um, that has to bear watching. Um, but I think those are the areas that um, we are keeping a close eye on, both positive and negative. Eric Anderson, you want to chime in? Uh, you know, I kind of talked about China before, but, um, you know, what's, um, what's an interesting topic that I've, you know, and talked about with some of my investors is, you know, how do you define a, a developed uh, market, right? It's always been about, you know, average wealth level, right? But, uh, you know, you know, we've seen EM, uh, you know, at the moment, a lot of the governments have shown that, you know, they've done a great job in managing the crises. You know, you look at Korea. I mean, it just they've had no lockdown, no queues, no stockpiles, no nothing. Uh, you know, China, you could say, was very draconian early on, but a lot of people ended up following, following suit. Uh, but, you know, what is what is the developed market? Is it average wealth level or is it, you know, preparedness to protect its citizens uh, in the time of crisis? So uh, I think um, so that, that's an interesting debate. And, uh, you know, Seeing Asia now, and we're very excited about Asia and the, you know, South Korea, China, Taiwan, et cetera, you know, they're, they're coming out. You know, you could say it's first in, first out, but I would say it's more the technology played a big role in that, since, especially in South Korea and in, in, in tracing and tracking this. Uh, but, uh, you know, they are, um, they're, they're certainly ahead of the curve here. And so it'd be interesting to see, you know, how they lead the world out of this, um, into this recovery. So we're very excited about that. 